0: that which is a prophet for everyone who has taken time to be with us. Now, the subject tonight, I think as was announced, is the indispensability of boundaries. We've looked together at the singularity of the foundation, at the centrality of the Lord's Supper, at the necessities for prayer, and now the indispensability of boundaries. In some ways, this is the place where The greatest attack has been made and the greatest difficulty has arisen in the issue of of boundaries. Now, everyone is familiar ever since Cloud and Townsend began putting out all of their books on boundaries in different ways. Everyone's familiar with the concept of, of boundaries. And we need to be balanced even about boundaries because Christianity is not about walls. It's also about doors. It's about having bridges built that enable people to appreciate the truth of God and to come to know Christ as Savior. So when we're speaking of boundaries and walls, we have to understand that they're, they're not solid brick walls that no one can ever penetrate, but rather they are places of protection that God has placed around different things in the assembly. Now, my task really is, is twofold. I have to convince you, first of all, that God places tremendous value upon boundaries. And then we'll look at some of the boundaries God has established in a local assembly. So we're going to go back to Genesis and chapter 1. We're going to be doing a very, very hurried, um, as someone else would have referred to it as an unholy haste through some of these early chapters, just to notice a few things and establish the principle of boundaries. Look at Genesis chapter 1, verse number 4, and the Lord and God saw the light that it was good and God divided the light from the darkness. Look at verse 7, God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under and so on. Look at uh, verse number, I should have mentioned verse number 6, dividing the waters from the waters in verse number 6. Verse number 14. Let there be lights in the firmament of heaven to divide the day from the night. Verse 18, to rule over the day and night and to divide light from darkness. Five times over, in Genesis chapter 1, God separates. He creates boundaries, if you will. And five times over, that same identical Hebrew word is used. The idea of separating, the idea of establishing boundaries, the idea of dividing as we have in our English version. So we're introduced to the fact, as early as Genesis chapter 1, in creation, God was in the business of dividing. Dividing waters, dividing light from darkness, and dividing earth from from water, and so on. So he, he was dividing and establishing boundaries. Now, we won't look at the next place, but you recall when he gave the commandments concerning the tabernacle. There were boundaries. In fact, when Moses was upon the mount, he told him to set a bound that the people don't pass. Boundaries for safety, boundaries for sanctity. All of those things were established even as early as Genesis and the book of Exodus. Turn quickly to Deuteronomy and chapter 19. Look at verse 14, here is a clear command from God, Deuteronomy 19 and 14, Thou shalt not remove thy neighbor's landmark, which they of old time have set in thine inheritance, which thou shalt inherit in the land, the Lord thy God giveth thee to possess it. So the landmark was establishing the boundary of a person's land, his inheritance. And God gave a clear command not to remove it. Then you come to chapter number 27 of this same book, and in chapter 27, it moves from being a command to actually being a curse. Look at verse 17. Cursed be he that removeth his neighbor's landmark, and all the people shall say, Amen. Amen. Come to the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 22. Here we have the Council of Solomon, verse number 28. Remove not the ancient landmark which thy fathers have set. And then in the very next chapter, chapter number 23, look at verse number 10. Remove not the old landmark and enter not into the fields of the Fatherless. Now, it wasn't just that they were old landmarks, and uh, everything that is old is good, and everything that is new is suspicious. But here were the boundaries God had given in the land, and God intended for those boundaries, those inheritances, to be passed on from generation to generation, and to be kept inviolate, to be kept absolutely as God intended. Nothing lost, nothing added to, whether by nefarious deeds or by uh, acquisition in any other way, God intended the landmarks to be maintained. So there was a command, there was a curse, there was the counsel of the wisest man, and we have the fact that God was aware when landmarks were being removed. While we're there, just uh, the very next chapter, look at, look at Proverbs 24. It's probably worth just, just mentioning this while we're here. Look at the end of chapter 24, Proverbs 24 and verse number 30. I went by the field of the slothful, by the vineyard of the man void of understanding and law was all grown over with thorns and nettles had covered the face thereof and the stone wall thereof was broken down. So because the wall, the boundary was broken down, What was outside the field was now inside the field. And so we have, again, the importance of of a boundary line. Look at Isaiah chapter 5. Just a couple of books on, looking at these in the order they're found. Isaiah chapter 5. Now will I, verse number one, now will I sing to my well beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My beloved hath a vineyard and a very fruitful hill and he fenced it and gathered out the stones. Again, a clear boundary to define what belonged inside the vineyard and what was outside the vineyard and to mark what belonged to the owner of the vineyard as being clearly his. So I think that uh, without going further, we have established, and I think we can establish if we need to even more, the fact that God desires boundaries. The principle of boundaries is present throughout the word of God. But what about the purpose of boundaries? It's enough to say God wants boundaries and if all we had was God's command, that should be enough. But God has also given us some insight into the The purpose of of boundaries. And I think all of us can appreciate that when something is valuable, we protect it. We protect it in any way we can. Now, if you are in uh, some of the countries that others here have traveled to, countries like Mexico or Central America or South America, one of the very first things people do when they begin to build a house is to build a wall, even before the construction begins. A wall is built to protect what is going to be built, because it's valuable and you don't want it to be marred or hindered. And we protect what is valuable. A marriage is valuable, and the Word of God instructs us to protect a marriage. It tells us very clearly that no one is to be closer than a spouse. That's the closest relationship. Nothing comes in between. It is protected. It is, has a boundary and no one is allowed to enter into that, to that boundary. For the sake of some just coming in, we appreciate you coming the long distance. Where We're looking at the indispensability of boundaries in a local assembly, that God has established boundaries. And we've taken a minute to show that in the Old Testament, God time and again stresses the importance of boundaries and landmarks and so on. And now we're looking at the purpose of boundaries. It is to... It is because things are valuable, and God wants them to be protected. But also not only because things are valuable, but because things are vulnerable. Things are vulnerable. If what is out there gets in here, there is the tremendous possibility of it hindering the fruitfulness and growth. And so uh, we read there, in in Proverbs 24, that because there was no wall, because the boundary had been fallen down, the thorns and nettles that were outside came into a field that was once cultivated, and now it was fruitless. And so, because of the vulnerability to what is inside, and because of how valuable what is inside is, God says, "I I, I want a boundary. I want to protect what is mine, I want to protect what is so valuable, but also I want to protect what is so vulnerable. It would be so easy. And so when you come to New Testament epistles, you find in 2 John the only letter written to a lady, written to the elect lady, written to the choice lady. John instructs her, don't allow those individuals into your home. There's a boundary. And those who come with a doctrine other than Christ, are not to be invited in. Don't even bid them Godspeed. Jude reminds us of men who are trying to creep in through side doors to bring in false teaching. Keep the boundary up, he says, in those in those epistles. And so we are reminded that we are vulnerable. All you need is a charismatic, attractive, eloquent individual coming in and being beginning to sway opinion and sway things, and uh, we could be affected. So there is the. The valuable, there is the the vulnerable. He says also because you are a visible testimony for me. You are a visible testimony that everyone looks upon and from a local church, I don't know if we grasp this enough, but from a local church and the very way in which it functions, there is a revelation given of the character of God. For example, just to take one, one strain of that, you recall in chapter 14, that we'll be looking at in a few moments, there was disorder in the assembly. There was the, uh, the confusion of multiple people taking part and trying to rival each other with their tongues. And he says, uh, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Let everything be done decently and in order. Because you are displaying the character of God in the very nature, the very means by which you you function. So a confusion and, uh, and all that goes with it, that's totally contrary to the character of God. He says, you are a visible representation of my character and I want you to faithfully give testimony to my character. So boundaries, because of how valuable we are to God, how vulnerable we are in ourselves, how visible we are to the world, God says, I want things preserved. And I'm going to establish boundaries that will, c- will clarify and will enable others to appreciate all of these truths. Boundaries also. Now, most here with, who have had families and uh, people in, in business, people who are in uh, important jobs know, boundaries also create security. I mean, that's one, one of the biggest, fastest, most lucrative professions to go into today is various forms of security. And universities spend millions of dollars to bring about security, to have boundaries where people can go, where they can't go, where passes are needed, where keys are needed, where swipes are needed, and uh, security is the result of boundaries. Boundaries also give stability to things and boundaries also give safety to us as well. So all of those things are involved that uh, God wants boundaries. So the principle of boundaries, the purposes of boundaries, the peril of neglecting boundaries. Now each of us as individuals, while this is not a meeting for our individual lives, each of us instinctively have boundaries in our lives, whether we are aware of it or not. I mean, our life without boundaries is an absolutely chaotic, uh, maddening type of life. We all have boundaries, boundaries to our homes, who can come in, who can come out. But more importantly, more importantly as believers, we have boundaries relative to, number one, our hearts. The word that, uh, Solomon uses in Proverbs, chapter, Proverbs 4, well-known verse, Keep thy heart with all keeping, above all keeping, for out of it are the issues of life. That word issues is the same word that is used throughout the book of Joshua for the, uh, the borders of the land. In other words, the borders of my life, the boundaries of my life, are going to be determined by how well I keep my heart. But as well, not only is it a matter of of my heart. He says, make sure, like the psalmist says, whom have I in heaven but thee, and there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. He says, make sure your horizons have a boundary. That the only thing you want in life is to please God. The only thing you want in life is to honor the Lord Jesus. So that every decision, every choice, every crossroads you come to, you bring it into the presence of God and will this please the Lord Jesus? Is this going to honor Him in my life? And so in all of those many different ways, we are coming to realize that we have boundaries, boundaries that affect our hearts, boundaries that affect our hands, our, our service for God, boundaries that affect our horizons. All of that is vital in our own personal lives. But we're looking at Boundaries in assembly life. And I'm just going to deal with three areas and you may want to add one or two in your own meditation. But I want to deal with boundaries about the gathering. Boundaries, boundaries between the genders and boundaries in the use of gifts. Very simple and very straightforward. Nothing earth shattering or uh, a great revelation. These are things most surely believed amongst us, but we just need to reiterate them, underline them, and show their scriptural basis. Boundary around the assembly, around the gathering. Boundaries between the genders and boundaries as to the employment of of gift. Boundary as to the gathering is submission to lordship. Boundary relative to The genders is submission to leadership and boundaries relative to gift. And I'll have to explain this, is really submission to love, as we'll see. So just with those things before us, and we'll look at them quickly and just try to give some salient points for the meeting. As far as the boundary and the gathering, Three things, the fellowship and its basis, the fellowship and its barriers, and the fellowship and the bread that we partake of. Now we touched a bit on that the other night, so I I know some of these things will be repetitive, but not bad because not everyone was here every single night, but the, the basis for fellowship, the barriers for fellowship, and finally the bread that we partake of and our fellowship. Now, what do we mean by the basis? Come then to Acts chapter 2 and verse number 41. These are all, again, almost apologetically, these are so familiar and uh, often preached on, often taught, we are just bringing together a few things here. Look at verse 41, then they that gladly received his word were baptized. Same day added unto them 3,000 souls. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Now that truth created a fellowship and in the fellowship. That fellowship was expressed in the breaking of bread and that fellowship then was sustained by prayer. So you have, a, you have a continuum here. In verse number 42, they were saved, baptized. They continued in the apostles' doctrine. It brought them into fellowship. It was expressed in the breaking of bread, and it was maintained, energized, strengthened by prayer. Now, this may sound like a very simple thing to say, but it has tremendous value. Fellowship is not something we have. Agree to have. Fellowship is something we have because we agree. Now, there's a world of difference between those two statements. Fellowship is not something we agree to have, that we sit down and compromise and work out our differences and say, well, now, uh, if you don't mention that, I won't mention this, and if you don't talk on this, I won't talk on this, and, and we'll have fellowship. Fellowship is not something that we agree to have. It is something we have because we agree. And the measure of fellowship we can have is dependent upon how much we agree upon. Now that doesn't mean we have to agree on every specific item of prophecy as to the future. And it doesn't mean we have to agree on every interpretation of every verse in the Bible. We can all have our own view of certain things but we are agreeing about the basic doctrines of the Word of God and agreeing about the principles of assembly gathering. So we mentioned the other night, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes to people who were saved, who were separated, who were saints, and who were submissive to the Lordship of Christ. Here we see them saved. They are submissive to the Lordship of Christ. They are baptized. They are gathered together together, sanctified, set apart. And we see them here carrying out the character of a New Testament assembly, those who were agreed as to the truth of God and it brought them into a fellowship together. And they expressed that fellowship by breaking bread. So God has put This upon scripture, so this really brings us not just to the the basis for fellowship, but it brings us then to the barriers of fellowship, because if this is the basis, then some of the opposite things become barriers. Number one, do I have the right link? You may say what I mean. Are you converted? Are you saved? Now you may say that's a very, that's obvious, isn't it? I mean, you've gotta bring that up. Well, we do have to bring that up. That's the first thing here. Here's a barrier. If a person has not been genuinely reached and saved, then they really cannot become part of a local testimony for God. So they have to have the right link. Number two, how about their life? Is their life clean? Remember that the assembly in its character is revealing to the onlooking world something of the character of God. If the people out there wanted to know what God was like and came in and viewed us, what impression would they get? He sounds very sanctimonious here, but uh, you should see him at work. You should see the jokes he tells and the language he uses and some of the things he does. Now, What about the life? Is the life clean? Now, that doesn't mean sinlessness. And it doesn't mean that somehow perfection has been attained. But it just means that I am seeking to live my life. I am submitting it. To the claims of the Lordship of Christ and obeying His word wherever it cuts across my path. Lordship implies obedience. Remember, that um, that was the complaint of Pharaoh. When Moses went in and said, Thus saith the Lord God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey Him? Who is the Lord? that I should obey him. Lordship implies, and really not only implies, lordship requires obedience and submission. So some might say, uh, I'm saved but I'm not baptized. I really don't want to be baptized. Well, submission to lordship means obedience. So it's not that baptism is a, a door to the assembly or baptism is on the checklist so you can get into the assembly. Baptism is linked with salvation. It's linked with obedience to the lordship of Christ. And so we're looking for that. We're looking for steps of of obedience, steps of bowing to lordship claims in an individual's life and looking for that. So saved, baptized, a clean life. But it's not just enough to be saved, to have the right life. I'm sorry, to have the right link, to have the right kind of life. But he makes it very clear that the fellowship was the result of not just of life saved, but of light the apostles' doctrine. They agreed about truth. Now that does not mean again that someone who was asking for assembly fellowship has to be able to answer all the hard questions the brethren place before them. But there should be an appreciation for what an assembly is, the distinctiveness of it, and what it stands for, and why it exists, and to whom we're gathered. So there, there should be some appreciation relative to New Testament assembly teaching. So if they don't have the right link with Christ, if they don't have the right kind of life, if they have no light about what an assembly is all about, then those are barriers. But if they have those things and they show that right kind of submissive spirit, then the the boundary that is around the gathering, the, the, the door is opened and the individual is welcomed in to be part of and assembly fellowship. The basis for fellowship, the barriers to fellowship, but then we spoke about the bread and the fellowship. And we mentioned the other night, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the bread which we break, is it not our communion in the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread, one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. So he's saying that really the bread is, Symbolic of two things. That the loaf of bread from which we take, we are confessing, we are professing or confessing that that body was given for us. That body was given for me. We are identifying with the Lord Jesus in His death. Now, for us sitting in 21st century Western world, it's not a very very dangerous thing to do. But in 1st century Corinth, first century Roman world, first century pagan society, it could be a very dangerous thing because you are once a year supposed to take your pinch of incense and offer it to Caesar and say, Caesar is Lord. But instead of taking a pinch of incense and saying, Caesar is Lord, if you were taking that loaf and recognizing he is my Lord, you are risking your life. You would risk your life to be identified with the Lord Jesus in that simple way. That's what they were doing. But he says, along with identifying yourself with Christ, you're doing something else. He says, you are identifying yourself with everyone else who partakes of that bread. He says, we being many are one bread, one body. We are all partakers of that one loaf. So as the bread goes around, we are confessing that we are all part of the fellowship and we are in fellowship with each with each other and so he says in chapter 14 he says in chapter 5 first of all that there is a within and there is a without there is a within the assembly and there is a without the assembly now when he comes to chapter 14 now notice carefully his wording if the whole church is gathered together so everyone's together And they're come in. So now someone is coming in who's not part of the local church. Someone who is unsaved or unlearned, and they see the disorder that's going on. They'll think you're mad. The unlearned man, if he's able to appreciate what is going on, he's able to say amen as you rise in worship. So he has life and he has light but he's called unlearned. You come down the chapter, and he says, uh, if all prophesy and all are edified, he that occupies the room of the unlearned will fall down and acknowledge that God is in you of a truth. Now, there's been lots of ink spilled over who the unlearned is and lots of verbiage that you can read A lot that is being said today in contemporary writing says that the unlearned is the man who did not understand the the foreign tongue. Now that sounds nice on the surface. The problem with it is, if we were to be consistent through the chapter, that means the entire assembly is unlearned because the man was speaking in a tongue that no one knew. So it can't be that he did not know the tongue because neither did the people in the assembly know the tongue. What is he unlearned about? He's unlearned about the very thing he learns, that God is in you of a truth. That's what he had to learn, had to learn this is God's place of residence on earth, a local church. This is where I belong. So there is an outside and an inside. And those who do not appreciate the character of an assembly, they're not inferior Christians. They're not somehow second-rate Christians. They're not being penalized or put in the penalty box as though this were a hockey game. When they're asked to observe, observe the Lord's Supper, it's for their protection as well as the assemblies. Because when they partake of that loaf, what they're telling God and everyone else is, I agree with everyone else here. If they have, if they have no idea what you agree about, then when they take of that bread, they're really, they're really jeopardizing themselves because they don't know what you agree with. So just to hastily bring someone in, say, you're a dear, beloved Christian, do come in and join with us, is exposing that person to the potential of lying as he partakes of that loaf. Because if he is not in fellowship with the assembly and all the assembly stands for, he is actually telling an untruth in his action. So it is for his protection It is for the assembly's protection as well. Not being judgmental, not being critical, not acting in a superior way. There should be nothing about our behavior, our attitude, that would make that individual think that somehow they are less valued, somehow they are less of a Christian, somehow they are a peg lower on the spiritual standing. Nothing of that nature. Just explaining to them, And it is a difficulty, no question about it It is a difficulty to do, but it is vital to do that because the confession we are making and the unity that marks us as we meet together as a local assembly is expressed in that bread that we take from. So there is the basis for fellowship, there are the barriers for fellowship, there is the bread in the fellowship, just a word about the behavior and the fellowship. Corinth was at a strategic place along the Isthmus. They were ideally located, you know, the real estate people say location, location, location. They had location, location, location for import-export trade across the Isthmus. The the desire to avoid having to go all the way down along the Isthmus and trade would be taken across from one ship to another. And they were in the import-export trade And it was a big deal. Unfortunately, in the assembly, they were exporting and importing things that never should have been exported or imported. They were exporting law cases to the judicial system of the day. Paul says that that belongs inside. Don't don't send it outside. And uh, they were going out to the idol's temple. Paul says, don't go out to the idol's temple. Stay inside. And of course, they were taking things on the outside and bringing them in. And so the, the sin of Corinth was coming in. The immorality, the idolatry was coming in. The competitiveness was coming in. The philosophy was coming in. The attraction with the sensational was coming in. So that the, uh, the boundary was being stressed. In their behavior, they were taking things that belonged inside the assembly and taking them out. And they were bringing things outside the assembly, their big feasts, their their wonderful dinners, and they were bringing them in to the assembly and shaming those that didn't. He said, uh, get your boundaries right in your behavior. So a boundary concerning the, the gathering. A boundary then concerning the genders, a, a boundary between the, the genders. Now, we need to have three different spheres in mind here. There is creation order, there is congregational order, and there is church order, church, the body of Christ. Not local now. So when I'm using that church in the third instance, speaking about the, the, the church universal or the church dispensational or the church, the body of Christ. In creation, in creation, as we mentioned, I think, last night, God gave headship and leadership to Adam. He gave it to him before the fall. It was not after the fall. Some have tried to argue that Adam only became head after the fall, and so with redemption, all that is done away, and there's no longer this idea of headship and submission because redemption has changed all that. It was given before the fall. It was God's original intention. To Adam was given a privilege. Up until a critical moment in time, everything that was named was named by God. God called the light day, and he called the darkness night. So God does all the naming. Now God says, Adam, I want you to name the animals. And then Adam names all the animals, and then Adam names his wife. So Adam was given that image-bearing responsibility before the fall. To Adam was given the instructions relative to replenishing the earth. He was given the instruction relative to the tree. Everything was channeled through Adam in chapter 1 and chapter 2. So that God's original intention in creation is leadership in the man and the place of help on the part of the sister. Now, just so you don't think, just so you don't think that being a help is somehow really, you know, kind of a pat on the head, you know, like you'd pat a little puppy dog, you you know, we're going to give you a little consolation prize. You can be a help. Far from that. You take your Bible, take your concordance. And look up that word, help, beginning in chapter one. I will make him a help suitable for him. You know where you'll find it? You'll find it scattered throughout the Old Testament in verses like this. Shall I look unto the hills? From whence cometh my help? My help comes from the Lord. Multiple, multiple times. God refers to himself as a help to the nation of Israel. Subsidiary role, secondary place, inferiority. God took that place with the nation. God viewed himself as a help to the nation of Israel. So that God brought woman along to enable man to carry out his leadership and to be everything God intended him to be. She has a separate spiritual life just as valuable as a man's. She has just as much value before the eye of God. She just has a different role. Different roles within the hierarchy of God's plan for for planet Earth. So in creation order, there is this unique distinction in roles of leadership and of being a help. Now, congregationally, Congregationally, God says, 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, I want that order to be maintained, if nowhere else in the world, I want that order to be maintained in local congregations of believers. So, I don't know if we should read all of these scriptures or, or look at them all, but uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the sister is enjoined there for her place with her long hair and with her head covering and with her silence, 1 Corinthians 14, with her silence again, and 1 Timothy chapter 2, her silence, her submission, her attire, all of that is brought before us. I should maybe mention, just for the sake of clarity, some have a question because they read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that a woman, if she's going to pray or prophesy, needs to have her head covered. And they'll say, you will see right there, it says she was praying and prophesying. The only problem was she was doing it without her head covered. How does that square then with chapter 14, 2 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2, where Paul says she's not to speak, she's not to pray, she's not to ask questions. How, does, how do those two things? Well, I think it's very, to my mind, it's relatively easily explained. First Corinthians chapter 11 is all about headship. So that when a brother gets up to pray, he is representing every sister in the assembly. And as he prays, every sister is seen praying. He represents as head. And as he is speaking to God, he is speaking on behalf of the sisters, he is representing them and they are seen praying. And so Paul says, how can a sister pray with her head uncovered, and he's really just showing us that headship involves representation and re- and the the thought as well of of the of the male speaking on behalf of the assembly and so on. So there is the the public role of responsibility is given to to the men to the males in the assembly, and there is a private supportive role for sisters. Now, women are seen in the New Testament. And uh, just, I think we we need to face the reality that women women receive far more accolades for their relationships with Christ than men do, far more faithful, far more perceptive. In fact, the last week of the Lord's life, when men were falling all over themselves with failure, women shone the widow with two mites, Mary with her box of ointment, the women that come to the tomb and the women that stand at the cross. So in in the last week of his life, women came to the fore when men failed. So there's not the idea in any way that somehow women are being given a place of private supportive role because they can't. No, women could come to the fore, they did. But we see women, number one, you remember that Lois and Eunice taught Timothy at home. You recall that Aquila and Priscilla took Apollos home to teach. You recall that Philip's daughters who are prophets prophesied at home. You recall that Titus chapter two, the older sisters are to teach the younger sisters. There is no public role for a woman teaching, even a woman teaching other women. The public role is never given to sisters. Public role is always in the hands of men. A private, personal, needed ministry is committed to sisters. Now, the problem that most sisters have is it says the older sisters. and I'm not old yet, so uh, I can't do it. Uh, I could use 50 as the cutoff, but I won't do that today. Very sensitive subject for some here. Uh, But uh, whoever you are, if there's a sister younger than you are, then that's someone you should be mentoring on a private, personal basis. Now, I think it's fairly obvious when you're reading Titus why... uh, why Paul had to tell Titus that the uh, the older sisters teach the younger sisters. Number one, what they were teaching them was about children, about husbands, about home life, about honoring God in the home. And it would be first of all out of place for Timothy, for Titus, a young man, to be meeting with the sisters. I mean, the Word of God is very very careful in uh, <laughs> you talk about boundaries between the genders. It it goes to great lengths to protect and to avoid any any possibility of anything being misconstrued. So Titus is not to meet with the young sisters and begin telling them about family life and married life. Likely, number one, he couldn't do it. And number two, it would be awkward for him to be with... So it's for the older women to be with the younger women. And it is a very private, a personal type of approach that is mentioned in Titus and is enjoined to our sisters, not a public role of preaching, not having, not having a a conference for women, not having a large gathering for women and uh, preaching away. If nothing else, you've set up a venue for teaching outside of the sphere of the control of the oversight. may seem like a small thing, but it has the potential, even if good people start it, it has the potential for being taken in a different direction by another group. So very, very careful the word of God would remind us. Our sisters do preach. They preach silently. With their heads covered, with their submissive attitude, they are preaching. We mentioned that last night. We mentioned that the night before, I think, that it is proclaiming to angels, proclaiming to others, their willingness, their intelligence, submission, and their place. And they are telling, proclaiming, the coming headship of Christ over the entire globe. That's a message worth preaching. That's a message worth giving utterance to by your heads being covered. That we are recognizing that a day is coming when Christ as head will rule over all and be over all. So there is the silence, yet silence which is eloquent and silence which preaches. So the creation order, congregational order, but then con- confusion occurs because people come to verses like Galatians chapter 3 at the end, where there is neither bond nor free, male nor female, Scythian or. So, and they'll say, well, you see, redemption is done away with all the distinctions. You're making distinctions between, you're, you're putting boundaries between the genders, and Galatians says there are none. Well, of course, in the church, the body of Christ. When it comes to blessings, what he's talking about there are blessings and privileges that come as a result of redemption, what he's saying is when it comes to blessings, there is no distinction whatsoever. Every believer, every believer enjoys the very same blessings as a result of what Christ has done. Put another way, every believer positionally is absolutely equal our position in Christ, nothing to do with gender, nothing to do with nationality, nothing even to do with my measure of spirituality. They are blessings brought to me on the basis of all that Christ has done. And the only thing I am called upon to do is to enjoy them, to appropriate them, to appreciate them. But male and female, no distinction when it comes to our Blessings in the body of Christ. We have the same blessings together. Let me quickly come not only to boundaries around the gathering, boundaries between the genders, but boundaries around gift. Now, maybe it would be good here to read one or two verses. Look at chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. And just maybe pick out at verse number 3. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 3. He that speaketh in a tongue edifieth himself. I'm sorry, verse 3. But he that prophesieth speaketh unto men to edification, to exhortation, and to comfort. There's the boundary, number one, a boundary about what I am doing when I am opening the word of God. I am either edifying, exhorting, or comforting. There is no place for entertainment. Now, there's nothing wrong with the, the occasional story to break the, the, uh, the strain of a meeting or to break the intensity of a meeting, but we're not here to entertain. We're here to either exhort, edify, or Comfort. Look down the chapter still further. So that's one boundary that we have to be very conscious of the purpose of of getting up and the purpose of of gift. Look at verse number, pick these out. Look at verse number 12. Even so, for as much as ye are zealous of spiritual gift, seek that ye may excel to the edifying, again, of the church again the the emphasis there upon edification verse 16 thou shalt thou shalt bless with the spirit how shall he that say amen how shall he that occupyeth the room of the unlearned say amen at thy giving of thanks seeing he understands not what thou sayest very simple thing now I know this is talking about a tongue but make sure when you speak you're audible and understandable don't mumble make sure you're audi- you are representing the assembly in whatever sphere, whether it's teaching, whether it's preaching, whether it's praying, whether it's worshiping, make sure that others can follow and intelligently say amen at thy giving of thanks. Look down at uh, verse number 27. If any man speak in a tongue, let it be by two or the most by three, that by in course, let one interpret. If there are no interpreter, let him keep silence in the church let him speak to himself and to God. Let the prophet speak, two or three. Let the other judge. And if anything be revealed to another that sitteth by, let the first hold his peace. All may prophesy one by one. All may learn. All may be comforted. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. So, not only edification, but consideration. It's not all about me having to get up every single Sunday and have my say and preach. This is not a one man ministry. This is not one man who dominates. We're reminded here, consideration for others, making room for others, appreciating the gift of others. All of that is involved here. Just a word for the sake of young Christians, young men, about identifying your gift. Now, I know that's not what we have here, but I just want to just use this as a a moment just to give a little bit of help here. Identifying my gift. How will I know? Okay, our, our gifts are circumscribed. They are always for the benefit of others. We mentioned, we read that there, edifying of others. Gift is always for others. Now that's helpful to grasp because it does away with a lot of the charismatic confusion. That unless you've spoken with tongues and had that blessing, you're really not filled with the Spirit. Or, or unless you've done miracles, you're really not enjoying Christian. A gift is never given to me for myself. A gift is never given to me for confirmation. A gift is never given to me as assurance. A gift is never given to me to go through an experience. Every gift that we are given is to minister to others. 1 Peter chapter 4, ministering the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Ministering to each other. So gifts are always for others. That's the first thing. Second thing is this. To sweat out what is my gift is to go with things the wrong way. Listen to what the Lord Jesus Christ does. I only have two minutes quickly here. Listen to what the Lord Jesus Christ... He's calling men and He says to a group of fishermen, Follow me and I will make you. Did you get the order? You follow. I'll take care of the making. So just advice to some of the young men and young women here. If you would like to know what God has in store for your life, how you can be useful for Him, you begin by following Christ. You begin by following Him, and He will make you what He wants you to be. He'll do it. His promise. He's the exalted head who pours out upon His body gifts, and he will f- shape you through experiences. Now, that does not mean that we swim along like helpless individuals and just wait for things to happen. There does need to be, on our part, an awareness of need, an availability to meet that need, an activity in that need, a, 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 an approachability as individuals try to encourage us as to whether we ought to be doing this or not. But. Finding my gift is secondary to following Christ. That's the key thing. And as I become more comfortable with what God has given me to do, then these principles, the the boundaries God has given, functioning in a local church, functioning for the benefit and blessing of others, functioning either in edification, exhortation, or comfort when it comes to the public handling of the Word of God, And then the other boundaries we could have looked at in Romans chapter 9, being a help, being an encouragement. The myriad of ways that all of us can contribute to the local assembly by the ability God has given. So we'll have to leave it there. Time is gone. We trust God. will bless his word. Boundaries, again, are not solid brick walls. Boundaries exist for safety, for security, for Stability. But in those walls, there are also doors, bridges to reach out to a a needy world, to display the character of God, to protect what is valuable, to preserve what is vulnerable, to maintain visibility, that is, in keeping with all that God is, that he might be glorified by our assembly. We'll speak to God in prayer.